0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. And we will finish Paul's second missionary journey today. The first one was with Barnabas, the second one was with Silas, and they picked up Timothy and Luke for a little while along the way. And today we're going to look to the end of this second journey. We're going to see Paul in Corinth mostly today. So the Corinthian letters, first and second Corinthians, were written to this church, which gives you a little insight on what they were like. And This is also very interesting because Paul is going to spend the longest time that he has spent anywhere on any of his journeys in Corinth. He's going to spend a year and a half there as opposed to just a few weeks or months. You know, there is no such thing as an overnight success. A lot of times we become aware of somebody doing something very well overnight, The marketing is done overnight, or maybe the event comes, and the underdog comes up and takes it, and it feels like an overnight success. But athletes or musicians or entrepreneurs or even pastors who burst onto the scene very quickly, there's always years and years of hard practice and hard lessons and diligence behind that. So you talk about some new CEO with this out of nowhere, out of left field, overnight success, and it turns out that they had like five other businesses that failed before that. And so there wasn't really overnight, it just seemed that way. It's the same way for us, and we're gonna learn that this is how it was for Paul and the church as well. In the book of Acts, you're given the highlights. We talked about this at the beginning, didn't we? You're given the highlights of the early church. They don't give you every day. They don't give you detailed descriptions of every meeting. They don't give you the names of every person that came. They don't give you the amounts that they tithed or anything like that. You're just getting the the highlights, the most interesting, the most significant stories, the mountain peaks, you could say. But we need to make sure we don't forget that in between those mountain peaks were valleys, were years and years of normal days where there was nothing worth writing down, and they probably couldn't even remember them all if you asked them to, but all of those days were building towards the big moments that we have in the book of Acts. I'm not really going to get into this point, but it is important for us to know that folks will come around and beat you upside the head and say, Now see, in the book of Acts, they were seeing this stuff every single day. Well, not really. <laughs> We're seeing the over like a 30, 40-year period, we have a book that covers all of those things that happened. So I think it's actually safe to say that a faithful ministry over 40 years would probably be able to write a book similar to the book of Acts, even if it's not quite as dynamic. But you understand, there's a lot of in-between time that happens. And while Paul was in Athens for just a few weeks, it seems, Luke gives equal space in the book of Acts to his time in Corinth, even though he was in Corinth for a year and a half. So to say it's hard to tell sometimes that there were all these days in between, but we know that there were. We become obsessed with the big moments in life, in history, in relationships, the crises, right? We remember the crisis. If there's a president who led his country through a peaceful time and economics was good and everybody was getting along, nobody remembers him. It's like, uh, I have no idea who Calvin Coolidge is. I know he was a president. Millard Fillmore. Do you know anything about Millard Fillmore? But that was still significant. There was still life happening. There were people getting married and having children and death and life and all these important things happening. But because there wasn't a big moment, we don't think about it. And in our Christian lives, we think, well, that day where everything just collapsed and my whole world fell apart, that was the most significant part of my life because I gave it to Jesus. Or that one day when I went to that retreat and I finally was able to see Jesus really for the first time and that was the most significant day. And you can pick a handful of big moments. But in between those big moments is a lot of life. In fact, most of your life. And those big moments will only be useful to us as people if we build up to them through daily obedience and faithfulness. And we're going to look here at Paul's work life in Corinth. We get a little insight into how he was living. And I hope that will be an encouragement to all of us to value our boring days. And to see that they're really being built up to good use for the kingdom. So let's read the first four verses now. and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks." So you remember the story so far. Paul was run out of Thessalonica by an angry mob. He went to Berea. The mob followed him from Thessalonica to Berea and chased him out of there, too. He got on a boat and went to Athens. And last week, we saw that he preached to the Gentiles in Athens with a little bit of success, but there wasn't the same response that he had gotten in other cities. And it says in verse 1, after this, Paul left, again, Indefinite in time. We don't know how long Paul was there, but it does seem that it was a little faster because we know that he sent for uh, Timothy and Silas right away when he got to Athens, and they're not going to reach him until they get to Corinth. So probably wasn't very long in Athens. And he gets to this city, Corinth, from where we get the word Corinthian. This city was about forty to fifty miles due west of Athens. If you have a map of Paul's journeys in your Bible, you've probably got a picture there of. Athens to Corinth, and it was situated on the isthmus, I-S-T-H-M-U-S, isthmus. That is a narrow strip of land that connects to bigger strips of land. So Central America is an isthmus between North and South America. You follow me? So this is an isthmus between the, the mainland of Europe, where Greece was, and what's called the Peloponnese, the peninsula at the end of Greece, and Corinth was situated right in the middle which made it a a rather important trade spot because it was only three and a half miles across at its narrowest point right there. And so what people would do was, rather than sail all the way around the Peloponnese, they would go up to the Isthmus, where Corinth was, and they would actually carry the boats over land and dump them on the other side because it was much safer, much faster, much cheaper to do it that way. They would have either slaves carry the boats, or they would get rollers, these big logs, put the big boats on them and roll them all the way across. And that's where Corinth grew up, was around this I guess business, you could call it, this method of transportation. And so there were about 200,000 people in Corinth. That's a huge city back then. And it was the administrative center of the province of Achaia. Remember, Paul started in the province of Asia. He moved into the province of Macedonia, and now we're down south in what is called Achaia. And while he's in Corinth, he meets a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila, now, Aquila, as I said a second ago, would have been pronounced Aquila. It means eagle. If you've ever heard someone referred to, I don't know why we always say this, they have an aquiline nose. You ever hear that? It means an eagle-like nose that comes down. I don't, that's the only word I know that's related to this, so it's the one I'm using. And then you have Priscilla. And I thought this was really interesting. In other letters in the New Testament, she's referred to as Prissa or Prisca. would have been how they said that. It was a hard C. Prisca. And then in Acts, she's called Priscilla. Priscilla was the, what's called the diminutive form, so we have somebody named John, we'll call them Johnny, or if they're William, we'll call them Bill or Billy, right? It's a diminutive form, it's a term of endearment, so Priscilla was the term of endearment for a woman named Prisca, so it's interesting because it tells us that Luke probably knew Prissa, and her friends called her Priscilla, just a little interesting thing there. This is a dynamic ministry couple that we're going to see a lot of in the New Testament, and we're going to talk a lot more about them next week. But what we learn here is that they were from Pontus, which is on the southern shore of the Black Sea. So they were up in northern, what is modern-day Turkey, and they had been expelled from Rome. This is an important note, and we have verified this historically, because a lot of people want to say the Bible is made up stories, but this is actually true. Claudius Caesar, in A.D. 49, expelled all of the Jews from Rome. That is the city of Rome. They had to get out. And the records that we have say that it was a debate over a man named Crestus that caused the trouble. This is very exciting because Crestus is probably a misspelling of the word Christos, which is Christ. So what we know from history is that Jews, like Priscilla and Aquila brought the gospel to Rome, and the dispute, which we saw it in Thessalonica and Philippi and everywhere else, between the Jews and the Christians, got so hot that Claudius Caesar said, all of you, out. You ever do that with your kids? They're fighting in the house. Just go outside. You can fight wherever. You're not going to fight in here. So they had been expelled from the city of Rome. They went to Corinth, and this is where Paul meets them. And both Paul and Aquila were tent makers, and that word is skenopoios, which means more generally leather worker, but usually for tents. So Paul would have been making tents, but it would have been a little broader than that. If somebody needed repairs on something made of leather, he would have been there to repair it. And as I said, this is the beginning of a long partnership between Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. And we see here what Paul's daily life was in the city of Corinth. He worked his trade, and verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. That was his life. He worked his job, and he did his ministry. And we're going to see later on in verse 11 that he will be in this city for 18 months. And there is a very interesting story to be told from their time in Corinth. But it's the only one we have. And this was just one day. So it's significant for us to note that for these 18 months, for almost all of it, nothing that interesting happened in terms of, oh, we've got to put that story in the Bible. That's a good story right there. Paul was just laboring faithfully day by day. Life and ministry are not a series of fascinating episodes like it is on TV. TV, it drives me crazy. I can't watch shows that go on forever when they're just they're gonna keep on milking this show until people stop watching it. Because just when everything starts to come together and they're happy and everyone is fine, all of a sudden, after the credits roll, like some villain comes stalking back in and it's like, you thought it was over. I'm like, oh, come on! Everything was fine. I was gonna be happy. I need some resolution in my life. That's not how life is, is it? Big, exciting moments. Oh, I'm so glad that's over. Oh, no, another big, exciting moment. Our lives aren't like that. And there are people that make a lot of money out of trying to convince you that life is like that, but it's not. Life is a lot of boring stuff, day by day by day. And we do have big, interesting, exciting moments, but it's your daily life that is going to prepare you for those moments. And Paul sets us an example here of how to be ready for a big moment, a crisis, something negative, or an opportunity, something positive. You can't just wait Say, well, when it happens, then I'll kick it into gear. Paul was preparing himself. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 5 here, verses 15 through 16. Paul said, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Literally there, you all know the older translations is to redeem the time. That is Hexagorazo in Greek. It means to buy up out of the marketplace. It's like your life, your time is there for sale. Buy it up. Redeem it. Use it. Look carefully how you walk. Time is like fruit in the market, Paul says. And if you don't redeem it, it's going to spoil and go bad. You ever get to the grocery store like right before the shipment of fruit comes in? I've done that a few times where you go to get an avocado and they're all awful. Like they're all either rock hard or they're squishing in your hand. And there's always like one enormous potato that's left and nobody wants it just sitting there. Or when you go to the big box of watermelons and there's no good watermelons left. Paul is saying, don't waste your time. Don't waste your life or it's going to go bad like that. And the only thing that's going to be left is just the, the rakings and scrapings, so to speak. Look carefully how you walk. It's a metaphor for how you live. Are you looking carefully to how you live? Or are you just sort of letting life happen to you? Paul knew it was only a matter of time until his next crisis point. And I suppose that could be true for all of us. There's going to be some big significant moment in your life. You just don't know where it is. So Paul says, in the meantime, I'm going to spend my time working hard for my living and preaching the gospel. That's redeeming the time. Making every day count. Are you redeeming the time that you've been given? Or is it sitting on the shelf, spoiling, and now the fruit flies are starting to, to fly around it? It's just wasted. We face the danger of letting our lives happen to us. You get up in the morning. You go to your job, because it's your job. You don't like it much, but you just go, because it's your job. You cut corners when you're at work. You check Facebook every minute you can. You eat whatever, whenever, because it's time to eat. I guess I ought to. You avoid conflict with people as much as possible. You watch some TV, and you go to bed. That's not life as God intended for us to live it, is it? That might be what we do every day, but that's not what God intended. The Bible tells us to live our lives on purpose, to take advantage of every minute of every day. This doesn't mean you have to be exhausted, you know, laboring and working every minute of every day, but even on your leisure or your recreation to be done deliberately. You know as well as I do, you can relax and have a, productive relaxation time or a worthwhile relaxation time, and then there's sometimes you're like, oh, that was just a big waste of my time, wasn't it? You know the difference. I know it, too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Don't just run, oh, I ran the race. Paul's like, don't you want to win the race? Don't you want to get out there and win Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I love that analogy. Paul's like, if I'm going to take a punch, I'm going to hit somebody. I'm not just going to be, well, I was in the ring, and that's all that matters. Paul's like, no, if I'm going to a fight, I'm going to win the fight. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That word for I discipline my body is I enslave my body. It uses the Greek word doulos, which means slave, and it uses it as a verb. Paul says, I have enslaved my body, and it does everything that I tell it to do. Hey, are you a slave to your body, or is your body your slave? I'm hungry. I better eat. I'm tired. I better go to sleep. I'm angry, I better yell. Are you a slave to your body or is your body your slave? The Christian life, we know this. Look at everything Jesus taught us. It's a life of self-renunciation. It's a life of discipline, rejecting what's cheap and easy and tawdry and clinging to what is deep and what is meaningful. Read through the Proverbs sometimes, guys, and how Solomon talks about people that just waste their time, fritter their life away. The book of Ecclesiastes is, is huge on that. It's like there are people that they just, they've spent their time and there's nothing there. It also has the alternate side where it says, and then there's people that spend their whole life living only for this life and they have nothing either, but it gives us that great balance. Like, hey, live the life that God's given to you. Take advantage of the blessings you've been given and have a reason to get up and be excited every day. We, we talked about this in the book of Genesis, right? The Lord created us a world for us to live in the world, to go out and make something of the world. The Lord's given you a life to go out and live that life. So we ought to discipline our bodies, discipline our minds to do what God has called us to do. We ought to be redeeming the time because the meat's going to go bad if we don't do something with it. your refrigerator ever start to smell? You're not quite sure what it is. And you open it up and you go, okay, that doesn't smell so bad. I'll let the next person find it. I've never done that. So what do we do? Well, the obvious ones, guys, let's look at this spiritually, are the spiritual disciplines. Disciplining yourself spiritually. Prayer. Not just arrow prayers. Not just, oh, Lord, I didn't work too hard on this presentation and now I've got to go do it. Please help me. Please help my boss have the flu today so that we don't have to do this. Not prayer, but sitting down and praying Seeking the Lord, listening to the Lord, having stillness. Isn't it funny how the world is now catching up to that? We have found that if you are still and quiet and meditate in the morning, it actually makes your day go much better. It's like, really? We've been saying that for thousands of years. (laughs) Say, early in the morning, Lord, I will seek you. Studying the Word. You guys, are you getting into the Scriptures and applying it to your life, learning what it says, learning what it means? Are you fasting to train your fleshly appetites, teaching yourself to say no to yourself. That's what fasting is for. It can be a a demonstration to the Lord of willingness to obey, but it's also you're you're training yourself. I'm not going to eat lunch today. Lunchtime rolls around. Your body says, hey, I'm hungry. No. (laughs) No, you may not have lunch today. And then your body kicks and screams and throws a little tantrum. But then you get through it. The next day, you do it again. And again, eventually, you get good at telling your body no. So now temptation comes, hey, I really want that. No. You're used to telling yourself no. That's what fasting is for. Evangelism, fellowship, having meaningful Christian conversations with your friends, it's all important. But beyond the spiritual disciplines, though, how are you living your life, guys? Because you can do your spiritual disciplines and then immediately go into the world and undo everything you've ever done. You ever feel like you come to church, you only can ever make it back to that same point? We're here, and it's great, but then during the week I have to come back to church and keep myself right here. And if I miss church for two weeks, I slide back even farther. Well, then there's something else going on. And you've got to start redeeming the rest of your time, not just your time at church. Idleness as a Christian will kill you. Because when you're idle and not doing anything positive, you know, you don't accidentally do the right thing. Have you noticed that? It's very easy to accidentally do the wrong thing. We don't accidentally do the right thing. Oh, man, I I never even thought about working out, and somehow I've been in the gym every day this year. (laughs) I just happened. I I don't know what that was. I've been been eating nothing but whole grains and bran muffins, and now I feel great. I never planned to do that. No, we accidentally, it's called entropy, right? Everything just spirals out of control slowly. That's our lives. The Lord calls you to redeem your life. How much emptiness, think about this, for your life, how much empty stuff is there that we consume? Just think about it. Let's, let's use the obvious one. Let's look at our phones, our cell phones. You ever compulsively pick up your phone and open something and then put it down, and then immediately you pick it up and you open it again and you put it right back down? I'm gonna check it, oh, I just checked it. Why am I checking it again? It's like you can't stop yourself. It's like you're at the casino with the slot machines. You can't stop. How many hours did you play that stupid game on your phone? You know which one, I don't, but you know. How many hours did you spend on that? Scrolling through the news. Come on, refresh a new article, please. I just need a new one. Why? It's just going to make you angry anyhow. Why do we do this kind of stuff? I don't know. I do know that our minds can get addicted to that kind of thing because it's easy and it's cheap and it feels good quickly. But the Lord has told us to renounce that kind of thing. It's carnal. It's fleshly. It's feeding what you want in the moment. And the Lord has called us to do things that are more worthwhile and significant let's determine that we as a church are going to be those who reject what is cheap and what is easy and pursue what is deep and meaningful and significant and spiritual that's how we live our lives looking carefully how we walk not just living so next time you pick up your phone and say do i want to be the kind of person that picks up their phone every five seconds and checks this i don't think i do i'm gonna put that down and then i can't stop okay now you've got to do what jesus said when he said cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin and start deleting some apps. Well, I need that one. Why? Well, because if I don't have it, then what will I do when I'm bored? Maybe you'll just be bored. (laughs) Maybe you'll start to pray. Maybe you open up your Bible every once in a while. Maybe you just sit there and be still for a minute. It's important, guys, because if we're not careful, we will let other people live our lives for us, other people thinking our thoughts for us, and we just absorb them and take them in and spit them back out, because we don't know anything else. The Lord has given you a spirit of self-control to live an abundant life, Jesus said in John 10.10. Isn't that great? An abundant life. How many things have I done this week? I tremble to think about it. How much time have I spent this week on things that are going to have zero value in eternity? When you stand before the Lord and it's all wood, hay, and stubble, it's just going to burn. It takes a little longer to get the gold and the jewels and the precious stones, as Paul said, but it's worth it, isn't it? Paul came to the end of every day worn out from work, worn out from ministry. But that was the life that God had given him to live, and he was living up every single moment. Live your life on purpose, guys. Prioritize what's important, and let the rest of it go. Leave behind cheap, leave behind easy, and do the difficult work of disciplined living. Well, anyway, let's move on to verse 5 here. So that's what Paul's doing, is living his life day by day in Corinth, Disciplining himself because he knows the crisis point is going to come. Let's read verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, finally, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And then when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Well, in verse 5, Silas and Timothy finally returned from Macedonia. Paul had left them in Berea, and now they've made what is now a 150-mile journey to Corinth. I don't know if Paul left word for them in Athens that, hey, I'm leaving, or if they just had to find him, but they made it, so it's okay. The team is back together. And if you read the epistles of First and Second Thessalonians, It gives us a little more information about what happened here between Paul and Silas and Timothy and the Macedonian churches. And it is this point now, if you want to write in your margins, this is the point where Paul would have written 1 and 2 Thessalonians down here in Corinth. According to 1 Thessalonians, it says that when Paul received a good report about the churches, he sent Timothy back immediately with the letter 1 Thessalonians because Paul was worried about them. He's like, I wasn't able to stay long enough to really establish that church, and they were being persecuted when I left. I hope they're standing firm. Timothy and Silas show up, and yes, they are standing firm. They're doing very well. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, sends it back. Timothy comes back, and he's got with him some questions from the church in Thessalonica, especially about the return of the Lord and the rapture of the church. So Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians and sent Timothy right on back with 2 Thessalonians, and now we have both of those letters in our Bible so we've said Galatians was in all probability the first epistle that Paul wrote first and second Thessalonians would have been the uh, second and third you could say as at least as far as his canonical epistles go most of his letters were written at the end of his life when he was in prison but as of right now he's written those three but now the team's back together and they're going about the ministry in Corinth and they're having some success here it says that many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized which is a bit of a surprise when you know what we know about Corinth. Because Corinth was not just a commercial center, but there was a temple in Corinth to the the goddess Aphrodite, or Venus would have been the Roman version. And we always love to say, oh, the goddess of love. Don't kid yourself. It's not the goddess of love. This is the goddess of lust, sex, sexual immorality, and all of that related nonsense. This temple was on a almost a 2,000-foot hill, so you couldn't miss it when you rolled up to Corinth. And part of the way this temple worked was they had what were called virgins in this temple, though they were not actual virgins. They would go out into the city at night, they would ply their trade as prostitutes, and they would bring the money back to the temple. And the way this religion was set up was it's not wrong to sleep with one of these prostitutes because it's, it's like you're having communion with the goddess Aphrodite. Isn't that a very convenient religion that some man made up? This is why it kills me when people want to talk about the splendor and the glory of ancient Rome and Greece and the goddess of love. It's like, no, don't. <laughs> you, you don't want anything to do with that, I promise you. We have to sanitize it so that we can teach it to kids. I remember in third grade, we had a, uh, we had a, a civilization section on, on Greece and Rome, and it was very interesting, and I loved it, but then you get a little older, and you're like, oh, that's what actually happened in that story, they gave us the, uh, the G-rated version. But this is what's going on in Corinth. And the city had a reputation for sexual immorality. There is a Greek word, which is Corinthiazistai. Do you hear the word Corinth in there? It'd be to Corinthize or Corinthize. We sometimes will use the term, you've heard this, Californication. Because people in California are very loose. Corinth has the same reputation. And if you read a lot of ancient Greek plays and and literature and stuff, if there's a Corinthian in the play, the Corinthian is not a good person. Let's put it that way. It meant to live a promiscuous life. And you can see why this would have been big business for them, because this is a major seaport. You've got sailors coming from both directions. They've been on the sea for a long time. And you can take advantage of that, and you can wrap it in religion so that it's not wrong. And here comes Paul, the apostle. He had just been in the most sophisticated Oxford, Harvard of the world. They didn't listen to him there. But he comes here. He comes to the red light district of the Roman Empire, and that's where people start to get saved. Isn't that amazing? This is like we said in the beginning when we were talking about Psalm 20. You you can't judge things externally. Well, they're logical. They'll listen to this because it makes sense. Look at them. They're not going to listen to us. We're talking about self-control. Well, which one had a church that lasted? Isn't that amazing? Great success. And you know, you read through 1 Corinthians especially, they had some problems in this church. But if you read carefully at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul has a lot of really good things to say about the church in Corinth. You can say one thing for these people. They didn't do nothing halfway. We're going all in on whatever it is. We're not just going to have communion. We're going to have so much communion that we end up drunk. Paul's like, okay, back off a little bit, okay? That's not right. If we're going to speak in tongues, we're going to do nothing but speak in tongues. And Paul's like, "But you need to have some interpretation, though, and just chill out a little bit, guys, right? You want us to forgive everybody and show grace? We're going to show grace even to this guy. And Paul's like, "Uh, actually, that guy probably needs to be kicked out of the church. (laughs) The church in Corinth did nothing halfway, and you know what? The Lord commended them for it. And that's something? I love that. Oh, I would never go to that church. Well, you want to go to the church in Laodicea? They had a reputation for everything was great. And the Lord says, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth because you're so lukewarm. Corinth did not have the problem of being lukewarm, whatever problem they had. And Paul began, as you see, preaching in the synagogue. He always did that. And eventually he was kicked out, as he always was. And he says in verse 6, your blood be on your own head. This is very similar to what we read in the book of Ezekiel, actually, where the Lord said, I'm calling you to be a watchman. If you warn the people of their sin and they do nothing, that's on them. But if I tell you to warn them of their sin and you say nothing, that's on you. It's the same thing for you and me, Christian. We've been called to preach. If you proclaim the gospel and they reject it, that's not on you. That's on them. But you know what is on you is if you say nothing really funny because we get it backwards. If I don't say anything, I can't be blamed. No, that's the opposite of that is true. I preach the gospel to them and they said, no, the rest of it is up to Jesus. This is what Paul did every now and then. He said, forget it. I'm not preaching to you Jews anymore because you don't want to listen. But we're introduced here to two very important converts. You have Tidious Justice, which says a worshiper of God. We've come across this term several times here. Cornelius was a worshiper of God. Lydia in Philippi was a worshiper of God. That is, they were not Jews, but they were going to the synagogue. They were worshiping the one true God. And this category of people, it seems, responded to the gospel more than anybody else. So he's a Gentile. And then we have Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. So he was a Jew, And we're going to meet another ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, in just a minute. Do you notice how the names, by the way, are becoming much more Roman, much more Greek? titius Justus, and Crispus, rather than Paul or Peter or Andrew or Simon. Those are very Old Testament names, right? Well, now they don't have an Old Testament. It's just the Greek legends, and the Lord is going to redeem all of that. So cool. Now, when we get down to verse 9, you get the feeling that Paul was thinking it was time to move on. This was kind of Paul's MO. He would preach until they rejected him in the synagogue. He would establish the Gentiles in their church, and then he'd go on to the next city. But Jesus stepped in here, and in verses 9 and 10, he gives him a vision telling him, stay here, no one's going to attack you. I know they're angry, and I know that in the last few cities there have been angry mobs that have come after you. I'm going to take care of you in this city. And so Paul says, all right, I'm going to stay. And this led to Paul's 18 months in the city of Corinth. You know, when progress is slow, when there's not a lot of dynamic change happening in our lives, the temptation is for us to quit and try to find where the action is. Have you noticed that? There are folks that will quit relationships the minute they stop becoming interesting. You ever know that guy? Let's let's just make it as safe as possible. The guy or the girl back in high school who would date somebody right until... They didn't feel butterflies anymore and then they would ditch them and go find somebody else. There are folks that do that long past high school, but that's that was when you saw the most of that going on, I think. Well it's just kind of it's gotten boring. It's like you mean you're like having a relationship now. <laughs> This is not just all up and down and crazy. And the couple that stays together is the couple that's got so much drama and so much terrible stuff going on because they don't really love each other. They love the thought that this is a very important thing that I'm a part of because look at how emotional I get all the time. It must be important. Living a day-by-day life of discipline, you guys, is not fun. It's not fun. I remember when I used to play football, I hated the big, long summer practices. But then when I stopped, all of a sudden, I got all nostalgic. Oh, man, I loved that. It was so great. And every now and then, you walk by a field of cut grass. And it's like, that smells like my old football field. I loved those days, because I built it up in my head on how great it was. And it kind of was, but in the moment, it wasn't fun. All I wanted to do was play the game. I don't want to practice. But if you didn't practice, you wouldn't be able to play in the game well. And in our lives, if there's no trouble going on, there's a temptation to get out there and make trouble, isn't there? Everything seems to be going just fine. Something's wrong, right? It's, it's, it's too quiet. It's like you're, you're in a cowboy movie or something like that. It's too quiet. I've got to shake something up. And I don't know that anybody does this on purpose. Like they go, well, I'm going to go ruin something so that my life gets interesting again. But we're driven to do that. We're driven to go and make trouble. Where maybe you're, everything's too quiet and everybody's getting along. You're going to bring up that thing from four years ago that you never resolved. And boom, now we're fighting again. I don't know why we do that. It's because we think there's something wrong with just having normal, boring, everyday life. Consider how many of God's people he had to send to the wilderness before their big moment. Moses. Moses assumed, it says in Hebrews, that he assumed the people would know that he was the deliverer. So he kills the Egyptian, and they don't much care for him anyway. So he goes away to the desert for 40 years He develops a speech impediment. He develops insecurities. He lives among sheep which were unclean to the Egyptians. And the Lord says, now you're ready. I'm going to send you on back now. And then it was 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It's not really the Bible story I'd like to be a part of, is 40 years wandering in the wilderness. What about Joseph? The Lord was going to use Joseph. Joseph was going to have his big moment. But it was a long time of getting smacked down for something you didn't do. Isn't that awful? But without that, he wouldn't have been able to do the things God was calling him to do. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. Paul was in the wilderness. He was in exile in Tarsus for a while. Even Jesus himself, 30 years of no ministry, and then 40 days in the desert alone, and then he began his ministry. Your life is not a soap opera. It is your life. And you cannot just live for those big moments. You've got to live for the in-between because that's where life is. You've got to let God prepare you for the big moments. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I've been in counseling with folks before where I will feel like I'm telling them the same thing for the 25th time. And they keep on hoping I'm going to have something different to say. And they're about ready to give up and they'll say, I'm tired I'm tired of this. I've been doing it for so long, I'm tired of denying myself. I'm tired of showing grace. I'm tired of being humble. But Paul says, don't get tired. Keep going. You will reap if you do not give up. It's like a farmer plowing the field, sowing the seed, watering it, putting the fertilizer down, taking care of it, pulling the weeds. I'm tired of this. I give up. There's no fruit. Well, you've got to keep going. Because you're planting, you're going to harvest eventually, Paul said. That's why the Bible tells us over and over again to abide. That's that Greek word meno. It means to continue or stay or keep going. Nothing worthwhile comes easily, amen? I know we have some athletes and some coaches in here. It's hard when you've got kids that don't want to work. I just want to play. You're not going to play good unless you do this part first. What are we running sprints for? I thought we were going to play baseball. You're not going to run those bases if you don't know how to run sprints first. What are we stretching for? I just want to get out and play. Well, if you don't stretch, you're going to get injured. The Lord has given us all kinds of things like that. He's given us wind sprints and stretches. He's given us scrimmages. He's given us church. He's given us prayer. He's given us fellowship. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to stand firm against the persecution when they want to try to chop my head off. If you don't do the rest of it, you won't do that. I want to stand against the darkness that's coming. There are a lot of people that want to protest against prayer being taken out of schools, but they'll never come to the prayer meeting. And I'm not trying to point anybody out. I don't know anybody here that does that, but it's a point to be made. Well, there's no prayer in schools. Well, there's barely prayer in churches either. Well, if there was prayer in school, you better believe we'd be praying. I don't know, because there's prayer in church and you're not doing that. Do you pray at home with your kids? No one can take that away from you. And that's just an example. You apply that to whatever you want. Well, if I were to come across a poor person, you better believe I'd help them. Is that how Jesus lived? Jesus went out and found some poor people he could go help. Well, if somebody were to ask for forgiveness, I'd forgive them. That's not what the Bible says. Get out there and show forgiveness. Show grace. A good life and fruitful ministry comes with difficulty and daily discipline. This is what Paul did. Paul's like, well, Lord, we've kind of hit the same peaks we always hit, and from now on it's just going to be, you know, basic church stuff. Is it time to move on? No, I want you to stay this time. I want you to stay and do that basic church stuff, Paul. Maybe he knew that the Corinthians needed some extra months out of the apostle. But, but there was going to be a crisis point, so let's read it in verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, you remember that's the region they're in, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, this feels like the same story we've heard a thousand times, right? But it's going to go different this time. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is quite a switch, isn't it? We were introduced to the proconsul, which would have been the regional Roman ruler named Gallio. We actually know quite a bit about him historically, and it really helps us date the book of Acts. So Gallio, if you're familiar with your ancient Greek culture and stuff, he was the older brother of Seneca, who's the famous Stoic philosopher. He was his older brother, and he had a reputation for a meticulous legal mind. Brilliant legal man. He, he would interpret the law properly. He would set important precedents. And you can see this here. And because of some archaeological discoveries we've made, we know for a historical fact that Gallio was proconsul in Corinth from AD 51 to AD 52. So this allows us to date Paul's time in Corinth because he was there when Gallio was there. So Paul would have been in Corinth depending on. At what point in those 18 months this event happened? Either from the late 40s to the early 50s AD. So we're looking at around 50, 51 AD here. It's only been 20 years since Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Isn't that astonishing to think about? That it didn't take the church but 20 years to fill the whole world with the gospel? Love it. But this is just very important for us to know because little historical details like this are what remind us that this is a true story. This isn't something that Luke just made up. You know, he's not just making up heroes and making up villains, and, you know, there was a dragon that swooped in. Like, no, this happened. These were people. His name was Gallio. He was the proconsul. And this is where they were. So around 50 A.D. here. But Paul is dragged before the tribunal. This is the bema seat. You've heard of that. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat, or the bema seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians tells us. And he's accused of preaching an illegal religion. We've talked about this before. Rome was very strict with what religions it permitted. Judaism was allowed. So what these Jews are doing is they're saying, he's not teaching Judaism, he's teaching something new. So it doesn't fall under the protection of Rome, therefore he should be judged for it. They say Paul is introducing an illegal cult. Another riot, another tribunal, Paul is on the ropes again, but he doesn't even have to answer for himself this time. Remember, Galileo is a sharp lawyer. He refuses to be a judge over internal religious matters. And he has the case thrown out of court. Because they say, he's teaching something different than Judaism. Because he says that our Messiah is Jesus. But we know that he can't be Jesus because of this prophecy. And he uses the prophecy wrong. And Galileo is just sitting there like, oh, I can't believe I'm having to listen to this. This is ridiculous. I did jury duty one time, and it was for a, uh, somebody had, cut somebody off making a turn and there was a car accident and they were asking and they were going through like hours of he couldn't have hit him because of this and the judge is sitting there leaning on his fist like i didn't go to law school for this that's what gallio is feeling right now and he's like listen this is this sounds like a like a you problem this is an internal issue i'm not going to judge this and he kicks them out and this time it's not paul who gets beaten but it's Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue the leader of this jewish faction I'm like, hey, step in and stop him. And Galileo's like, I, I have, no. <laughs> I have no time for this. So what seems to have happened is Crispus was saved, this ruler of the synagogue, and was probably removed. So they bring in this new guy, Sosthenes. Do you know what's very interesting? In 1 Corinthians, Paul has a co-author named Sosthenes. So what, it seems, happened after this is that Sosthenes himself would be saved and travel with Paul after this. So isn't that something to think about? I wish I could dive into what that story might have been, but maybe Paul and the Christians started actually showing love and kindness to Sosthenes rather than saying, you got what you deserve. But at some point, this guy became saved, and he became the co-author of the book 1 Corinthians. I think that's amazing, isn't it? 2 Thessalonians 1.6 says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. I'm going to read that again. This is my life verse right here. God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The Lord always sees when his people are being abused, punished, ostracized, and the Lord says, it's only fair for me to give back to those folks what they do to you. The Lord's looking out for us. This is an important thing to remember because we can, again, only look at things through the physical. Oh, they're coming for us. The end is coming. The Lord's like, I got this. I got this. I can have it all turn around. Read through your Bible and see how many times the Lord made sweeping changes to the religious or the political landscape in one day. That's all the Lord needs. So the church is not going to be bothered anymore in Corinth. And it could be that Luke included this story because this might have counted as a legal precedent for the church that would later be persecuted in the Roman Empire. So very significant story here. The fact that they were brought on trial and the case was thrown out, next time somebody wants to bring the Christians before, they could say, well, we were on trial before Gallio and Gallio threw this out and said that we didn't have to be bothered for this. So maybe that's part of the motivation for including this story. But the crisis came, the crisis went, And there's, other than that, no big story to relate in Corinth. The Lord honored the long-term obedience of Paul. As I said at the beginning, there's no such thing as an overnight success. Success comes after years of faithful, diligent practice, focus, prayer, discipline. And in that sense, there's no such thing as an overnight failure either. Anytime you find somebody who just failed in the moment, there's always something behind it. They've been neglecting this, they've been neglecting that. There are tentpole moments in our lives, you guys, whether it's a golden opportunity for something good or it's a fearful trial, something bad you're going through. But the outcome of both of those things is determined by what you do in between. If you spend your days wasting your time, neglecting the word, complaining, training yourself to treat people poorly, then you will fail like an out-of-shape athlete. You might be the champion, like Rocky, remember, Apollo is the champion. No one can touch him, but he doesn't take the fight seriously, and he almost loses. That's how it is for us as Christians. Just, oh, when it's serious, then I'll take it seriously. No, you have to take it seriously now so that when it comes, you have the capacity to take it seriously and do what you know you need to do. If you spend your in-between days in prayer and obedience and self-control and showing love even when you don't want to, then even the crisis in your life is going to be a chance for the Lord to be honored. Jeremiah 12.5, when Jeremiah started to complain to the Lord, God gave Jeremiah the job to preach to the nation of Israel, and he said, you will not change one mind. No one's going to listen to you, Jeremiah, but I want you to preach anyway. After a while, Jeremiah starts to complain, Lord, it's too hard. They don't want to listen to me, Lord. All my friends have turned on me. No one wants to hear me. Jeremiah 12.5, the Lord came to him and said, hey, it's okay. That's all right. You can quit if you want to. Is that what the Lord said? He said, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? And if in a safe land you're so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? He said, if you think this is bad, what do you think is going to happen later, Jeremiah? They're being mean to me. He says, Jeremiah, they're going to beat you. They're going to throw you in a well. You're going to be up to your waist in the mud. They're not going to feed you. They're going to try and use you as a political pawn and bring you back and forth. You're going to carry a yoke around your neck for a few months. We're just getting started and you're already tired. Same thing for us. You're like, oh, life is so hard. Listen, you're not even in a trial right now. So get it together, the Lord says. The Lord knows when to apply tough love, and Jeremiah needed that. You set patterns of how you respond to things every day. Fail to save your money, a crisis comes, and now it's a disaster. Fail to exercise, and you're going to go out hiking with your buddies, and you might have to take a break halfway. Fail to control your temper in little things, and you can't control yourself when it counts. If you get mad over every little thing, and you let yourself rant and rave and mutter under your breath, someday when you really are angry, you've already set the pattern that we get mad about things. Fail to pray when it's easy, and you won't pray when it's tough. The Lord honors long-term obedience. Don't live for the tentpole moments, but prepare for them. Be getting ready for them so that maybe they are going to boost you forward, but how about you move forward in the in-between so that you get boosted even farther than you were before, rather than just bringing you back to the same place. The spiritual life either gets strengthened or it atrophies based on how you act. And the devil knows this, so he tries to set patterns in your life over stupid stuff. But the Spirit also knows this, and it's why he tells us to redeem the time and take every day seriously. Paul was willing to be faithful in his boring life in Corinth, making tents and evangelizing pagans. And when the crisis came, the Lord honored him in that moment. What if Paul had been grumbling and complaining the whole time he was in Corinth? Now he's before the judge, and he spouts off at the mouth. And God maybe was willing to defend him, but now he's made it worse for himself. Faithfulness, you guys, it matters. Bringing it to an end here, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At cenchreae he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. That's Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, He declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Many days after his trial, he left with the team to go back home. Priscilla and Aquila come with him. I think it's likely that Sosthenes came too, because apparently these Jews did not want a Christian ruler of their synagogue. So if he became saved, he would have been run out of town. Might as well as come with Paul. Corinth had two ports. Remember, it's on the isthmus, that skinny piece of land. It had a western port called Lechaeum that opened up into the Adriatic Sea. And it had an eastern port called Sencria, which opened up to the Aegean Sea. And that's where Paul is going to depart from. And it says there that he cut his hair to complete a vow. This was probably a Nazarite vow of some kind. Read through number six, if you like. It talks about that, that if you wanted to make a special commitment to the Lord, you would not cut your hair, you would not drink wine, you would not touch any dead bodies, like Samson, right? But Samson was significant because Samson was a Nazarite for his whole life. Normally, you would be a Nazarite only for a prescribed period of time. And what you would do when the vow was over, you'd cut your hair, and you would take that hair to the altar in Jerusalem, and you'd burn it on the altar. And so Paul Finishes his vow, cuts his hair, but he's got a bag full of hair that he's taken with him because he's going to offer it up when he comes to Jerusalem again. So Paul is still keeping the law, but we know that he's keeping it in liberty. He's not bound by the law, but he's still using it to worship the Lord. He's using the pattern that it's prescribed as a way to show devotion. But we also know that he was not bound by the law in the same way that we are not bound by the law. Nothing wrong with doing that now as long as you know that it's not going to make you more spiritual and it's not going to save you. Paul knew those things, so it was okay. Well, their first port of call is Ephesus. They're back in Asia, modern-day Turkey. But Paul does not stay long. They are wanting to hear him. So he says, if the Lord wills, I will return. We know that he will return, of course. On his third missionary journey, Paul will spend three years in Ephesus, twice as long as he spent in Corinth. Timothy one day will become the pastor there. But for now, Paul's going to leave Aquila behind, and he's going to disciple them. And we're going to see next week that he's going to help out Apollos as well, when Apollos shows up. Then they take a quick stop in Caesarea. He sees the church there. And in verse 22, the second missionary journey ends. He arrives back in Antioch, where it all began, and I'm sure he had some stories to tell. But Luke, it's really funny, does not give us any time before diving right into the third missionary journey. And Paul's going to begin that, he says in verse 23, he goes back to Galatia and Phrygia. Those are the churches from his first journey, Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, all those places. Probably brought Timothy home so Timothy could see his mama again. He was from Lystra and he'd been gone for years now. Paul said in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was a faithful man. He didn't see his life as Well, every now and then I go on a missionary journey. He says, my life is a missionary journey. And in between, I sometimes will come back to Antioch and take a break. His life was sold out to Jesus. And we saw today that it was through his daily discipline and intentional living that Paul was able to maintain those long years of service. If Paul was not daily following the Lord and daily doing his ministry, he wouldn't have been able to maintain this. He would have been like John Mark and gone home halfway along the journey. We look at the example of Paul. We want to be like Paul. We want to be like John the Baptist. We want to be like Joseph or Martin Luther or whoever your your champion of the faith is. But y'all, people like that don't just happen. Oh, they just were special anointed by God. They were, but there was a whole buildup that came before their special ministries. Martin Luther spent years as a monk, as a professor, as a Bible teacher, praying and studying the word before he ever showed up and nailed the 95 Theses to the church in Wittenberg. There was a lot of life before that. And it seems like overnight it all just happened. But it wasn't true. It was a long time leading up to that. Even Calvary Chapel as a movement, which in the 70s, it exploded in churches all over the world. But they were only able to receive that blessing because Pastor Chuck Smith had spent decades of unremarkable ministry Faithfully teaching the word, quietly doing what he was supposed to do, so that when the big moment came, he was ready to receive it. Don't live, guys, for the crises of life. Don't live for the big golden moments. The Bible has a lot to say about big moments, but it has a lot more to say about how to go about everyday life. Don't let life just happen to you. Life didn't happen to Paul. Paul happened to things right? Paul happened to cities. He happened to synagogues. He happened to people. Redeem the time. Don't let it spoil on the shelf, Paul said. Enslave your body. Do what you know needs to be done. Find out what works God has given you to do, and then do them with all your heart. Because you don't know how long until the next big moment. And more than that, you don't know how long until Jesus Christ returns. The world's running out of time. But it's not going to be a big event that's going to change everything. It's not going to be a cool moment. It's not going to be one great service that's going to finally finish it all off. It's going to be countless Christians living daily, disciplined lives one day at a time. And then the Lord will say, they're ready for me to do something big.